Welcome to Voices of a Highway, a podcast for, with, and about the incredible people that live and work along Beaufort Highway. Beaufort Highway is a 10-mile corridor in Atlanta, Georgia that crosses three counties and three major cities and is home to more than 1,000 immigrant-owned businesses. Known as the International Corridor of the Southeast, Beaufort Highway stands as a culturally diverse and nuanced locality with over 100,000 people that belong to communities from different parts of the world. Stick around as we delve deeper into the lived experience of this episode's guest. Gracias. I also absolutely love the, the, this notion of Jung, am I saying it right? Yeah. Um, this, this notion of belonging, of a collective we, and, and redefining what that we can mean. And I think as immigrants, a lot of your immigrant journey is understanding what your we looks like, right? What, what community am I a part of? Where do I feel like I belong in this collective we? Do I feel like a single I? Do I feel like someone's extending themselves towards me? Um, and, and a lot of that tension as immigrants and, and people that live on Beaufort Highway and, and people that have just experienced immigrant sensations and journeys elsewhere, um, there is a very particular sensation of belonging. How do you belong? Where do you belong? And, and where, when and how and where do you feel included? So it's, it's a very poignant term and I think it's very uh, applicable to Buford Highway and, and to just being an immigrant. The, the other thing that I wanted to say was, um, you know, we, we're talking a lot about sort of the immigrant journeys and, and now we've talked about opera. Um, it's such a beautiful collage, right? And we use the word collage. I think Jorge used um, interdisciplinary earlier on. And, and I think the point of it is, you know, it doesn't matter what word we use for it. It's this idea that art is drawing from so many different angles, from so many different positions. And that's something that we all discussed, right, when we were on Buford Howie. And we, we were just so excited about this project, including community partners and community organizations like We Love Buford Highway and artists. And that, that aspect of collaboration, I think, was so key to this project. And it shows how important it is when we're talking about art to include all of these voices. It's, it's, you know, it's not that rancheras don't belong in opera or that taekwondo books don't belong on the stage. You know, it's, everyone has something to say and all of these angles have have value and have meaning and, and it's it's up to the artists and, and people like you guys to to bring it all together and, and make it something meaningful and something beautiful and there's a very interesting parallel with what Buford Highway is it's this collage I mean we went to Pine Tree Plaza when we were here when you guys were here and you know we saw like supermercados latinos and you know rice cake and clothes and it's just this mismatch of so many different things um which i I mean it it talks about what the american dream is right and i think it's very interesting that you guys chose buford highway dream as the title um and it is the theme of of this podcast that we're doing uh, this episode and i was wondering if we could all maybe reflect um together on on this expression the american dream how do you think that buford highway dream complexifies that or nuances that phrase did you think about that phrase when you were coming up with the title and after all of this discussion we've had like what do you think about those two coming together yeah it's a 
um, you know, a multi-layered question. And so maybe a multi-layered answer is, is needed. Um, I think Ale came up with, with the title. I think we, we really wanted to honor um, Beaufort Highway. So we wanted to have that in the title because the piece is not only about Guillermo. He is at the core, at the center of it, but it's really about this community and about solidarity of migrants and about a community of migrants coming together and helping each other out and, 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 and succeeding. We want to tell a story of success. So we really wanted to have the, the neighborhood in the title. And, um, and I think, you know, this idea of dreams, I don't necessarily personally equate it to the idea of the American dream. It's Guillermo's dream. It's a young stream. And that's how, that's how I feel about my own experience. The expression American dreams has no weight on me. I don't believe in it. It's my dream. They're mine. No one else gets to own them or claim them. They belong to me, maybe to my family. And that's the extent that I will let people take ownership of them. So I think that, that the phrase is often you know, used as a way to, to also manipulate our, our uh, emotions in, and to manipulate our communities into a sense of, of belonging. And I, and I question that. The American dream for me is also tied to the search for wealth and material goods. It's, it's tied to economic mobility. But then, you know, maybe we should just call it what it is, a search for economic mobility. Uh, why does it need to be tied to this nationalistic, nationalist trope and nationalist identity? You know, and I'm very careful also with using the word uh, migrant for myself. I don't consider, I am not an immigrant. Uh, people can describe me as, as an immigrant if you, if you live here uh, in the United States and, and you are referring to me as someone who okay. came here. But I am a migrant. I am someone who got on my feet and left. And I am not sure that I'm done migrating. Maybe I'll migrate somewhere else because, you know, why not? Uh, because I, I don't believe in, you know, I don't believe in, in nation states. They are constructs. I just believe in, in happiness, in my own happiness, in the happiness of my family. Uh, and I, I believe in, a, in leading a life where I can just freely cross and go visit my family in Mexico and then go visit my family in New Zealand and my brother in the UK or wherever, you know. That mobility should be a, a right of every human. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. It's, you're so right in saying that there's, I think there's a loss of agency when we talk about the American dream, right? It's, it's not Jorge's dream. It's, it's, it's America's dream, right? And, and it belongs to something else. And I say something because it's intangible and it's complicated and it's tied in to other definitions of what a dream is, right? It's not just emotional capital, which I don't think is valued, unfortunately, in society as much as it should, but it's economic capital and it's social capital and it's, it's tied into a lot of other things. So it's exactly why I wanted to have you both um, here because I think it's it's important to nuance these these terms these terms that are they're they're used as an excuse and they're used as a as a tool and as a weapon at sometimes and so 
thank you for saying that. I'd love to hear what Ale what Ale thinks. Yeah, I love. Um, I I really think that uh, Jorge's points are are really uh, valuable and really meaningful to this conversation. Um, and I also wanted to point out, like you know, this this discussion of sort of the um, migrant not being done migrating. I love that because it reminds me of you know we we very often see I think in art um, that is especially representative of the Latino community um, as being represented by the monarch butterfly. Um, and, you know, growing up in California and Southern California, especially, that is something that I got to witness, especially as a kid, was the, the migration of the butterflies. And that's something that, uh, you know, if you haven't seen it, is really striking in person because these are, you know, beautiful creatures that, um, that move across the border back and forth, uh, you know, in their... Um, you know, in their living of their own lives, and that it is a treacherous journey sometimes, and but that it is a journey of fulfillment, uh, you know, for, um, you know, for themselves as as creatures, you know, and that's something that is deeply inherent, instinctual as part of, um, you know, their lives. Uh, you know, for me, the idea of the American dream, you know, I I think that for for myself, at least the the best version or the best that that phrase can represent has changed i think and that's something that is very important to to recognize that um you know in 2022 you know the many people's definition of the american dream or of what they want to accomplish what they want to achieve is different from what it was 10 20 30 40 50 years ago you know it's all changed and i think that if I want to find sort of the best of what, um, you know, somebody may want to achieve uh, or to experience, I would say, I would say the answer lies in change. Change, you know, like, like Jorge says, economic change, of course, that's people want to change their economic or their social, um, you know, their class standing, that's part of it. But I think that we can, in the, in the most optimistic sense, we can look into um, also just changing of your situation, of your of, of how you identify. That's a big one, right? As we talk about people who are in the uh, LGBTQ community, you know, how do I how do I come to a more perfect understanding of who I am? You know, that's important to, um, you know, to the dream. And I think for Guillermo, for his own experience, you know, the, 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 the you know, quote unquote, dream that he experiences and that he goes through is not one of enriching himself or enriching his family even, but it's one of um, discovering this challenge uh, in losing his sight and being able to adapt and being able to understand that the life that he had as a laborer in, in construction, that that life is no longer available to him, but that he now has the opportunity, the ability to choose something else and to change. Uh, and, and that I think is really beautiful. And that's something that I see even in my own parents, you know, my parents, my parents' parents, um, were the ones who, who immigrated. My grandparents all had very much labor centric jobs. My, uh, my paternal grandfather was a mechanic. My maternal grandfather was a carpenter. Um, and they both took a lot of pride in their work. They worked that job 
forever, like, you know, the entire time, basically, that they were in the United States. But take, for example, my mother, my mother works in education, you know, and she began as a teacher's aide, and then she became a teacher, and then she became an administrator. And now she's working as a principal, you know, at the in the Los Angeles Unified School District, that sort of change that growth in her career is one way that her her she experienced change in her life, that maybe was not something that was able to be experienced by her parents. My father has held every sort of job in the entertainment industry. He works in Hollywood, you know, and he has had, uh, he has worked for so many different companies. He started his own companies and started new companies and done pilot TV shows. And he does kind of whatever project kind of comes to him. And that, that changeability is super important. And he told me when I, he knew that I was going to pursue a career in the arts he he knows it's hard because he works kind of in in the arts you know hollywood is you know television film production is another kind of art and he told me he said miha learn to do everything like learn don't just learn don't just put yourself in a box and say i'm only going to learn to be like you know the the best opera singer that i can be and like not not learn anything else and he's a big part of the reason why i'm also a writer why you you know i'm a singer and a writer and you know also in other ways than administrator and that ability to to sort of change to be able to pivot that you know because I pivoted during the pandemic as well I lost a lot of singing gigs um you know because obviously singing was not really possible during the pandemic and it was then that I ramped up my writing the ability to change to adapt to persevere is something that I think is central to maybe at this moment the best most a noble reading of what the American dream might be. I don't think that that's necessarily how people think of it when they use it, you know, in a more conventional sense. If I could redefine it, that's how I would redefine it. Yeah, it's part of the work, you know, it's it's to to have spaces where you can redefine it and where someone else will hear it and say, hey, yeah, that makes sense. And then they will say something else next time they use it or hear someone using it. I feel like the soul and the heart of what what you just described is the importance of plurality. We are multifaceted people. We are complex and we are 3D and we have depth and we cannot be reduced to one career or to one dream even. Dreams change and we change and there are there's a multiplicity of us living in one body and living in oneself and even going back to um, to opera, right? There's all these components coming together and creating something so distinct and so unique. And I think um, people are the same way. And, and it's what makes art so moving and so powerful. Um, so thank you also for, for redefining that here because it's very important. And I, I know that I said this a million times when we were together in person, but it's so refreshing to meet artists who just put their heart in what they're what they're doing and and it's just the sensation that that you care about the work that you do and that you put yourselves in the heart in the work that you do and there's power in that and I I'm really happy we got to talk a lot about Buford Highway Dreams um I have just two two more questions that I think are more personal just related to to you both one of the things that we discussed uh when we were eating tacos uh, on Buford Highway how does it feel for you both to to be artists and to and to be working in a space that has historically been exclusionary of people like us and and when I say us, I just mean not you know white privileged men 
uh, how does that factor into your lives and, and your in, in your careers and your journeys as artists? No, I think it's a great question. I think for me, I've, I've done a lot of thinking about this over the last couple of years. Um, you know, sort of how, how did I even get involved in classical music? <laughs> because, I, you know, it wasn't something that, that I grew up with. So I, I literally took myself to, to the audition and I had no idea, re uh, you know, I had very little idea of what I was getting into. I, I just knew that I wanted to be a musician. Uh, that was my my goal, and uh, and music school uh, in Mexico and in the United States and everywhere else is still uh, very uh, very biased towards towards Eurocentric art forms. That's just that's what you encounter. Um, but I, I went to a very interesting school in Mexico. You know, we did we trained classical, but uh, but we also learned. Um, about uh, we, we learned a lot about uh, traditional folk music, traditional Mexican music, music from Latin America, just just as part of our of our, of our heritage. So in a way, it's all the same to me. Um, you know, they they are all important traditions, and I think I think what what's really changed for me over the last few years is that there is an interest in, in, in the stories um, and in the way that I sell myself as an artist or that I portray myself as an artist. Um, I, I used to be the, the tech guy, my, my in into the arts, into the, into sort of um, performances and, and, and sort of my, my currency, my, so my musical currency was technology. Uh, and it was on purpose. I, I wanted to be sort of at the forefront of what could be done technology-wise. But that has changed over the last sort of four years, three to four years, in with this seismic shift into, into understanding uh, and into building a more equitable and more, di more diverse musical landscape. And so, uh, you know, it's, it's not that I haven't done work on... on on the traditional music or, or stories of, of our of my culture, Mexican culture, haven't been there. You know, I, I've I've been doing this for a long time, but now they are like they 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 really represent mo most of what I do, and so I guess um, one day there after you know after the tragedies that happened during the pandemic, not only the pandemic but George Floyd, Black Lives Matter, the immigration crisis the draconian, you know, Trump laws and the discrimination and the upheaval that came with all of that. Um, so that, I think, got some people, you know, presenters and people in, in positions of power to say, well, we really need to change. We really need to be more equitable. We need to be more, more diverse. Where do we look? And it just happens that, you know, we've been doing this for a while. So, so we are here, you know, but we've been here for a while. I've lived in in this country for 20 years and I've been doing professional work for over 20 years so okay. um, so when it was time so I think it's in a way I think it's someone else's waking moment not not mine necessarily yeah. uh, but I do find now that I it, it's finding an, an easier avenue it's finding an avenue in a way that maybe 10 years ago we had to build the avenue Mm -hmm. You know, we have to build it ourselves, produce it ourselves, put it on ourselves. And now 
what, what I'm finding is that there are people who are saying, oh, we really are looking for this work and there it is. So now we will build the avenue or we'll bring you into our highways, into our, into our theaters. Mm-hmm. And so that, that has been really positive for my career personally. Thank you for that. It's a very beautiful, uh, very beautiful metaphor, the avenue and, and building it. And yet yeah, we've been around, <laughs> we've been here for a while. So it's, it is empowering and it is, it's important to recognize, I, I think, the, the work that is being done to, to make this type of work more visible. What I found that's the most nourishing part of recent years, let's say, and, and one of the effects of this collective awakening on the part of people that have had more power before is the opportunity to meet more people like me. Um, mm-hmm. I do think there, that is something that has been very generative for me, is, is having these platforms and these spaces where, I mean, I would have never met you too had it not been for this project, right? And so it is sort of like a puzzle that, you know, every puzzle piece matters and, and it bridges people that have been living similar lives and have been having similar thoughts and that spirit of collaboration that creates power. And I think historically that's been the fear, right? Is that, oh, well, if these all, all these people unite, they're going to have a lot of power. And being given that opportunity to create powerful spaces and powerful messages like this opera and like this conversation that we're having right now is, is beautiful. And I think it's very um, generative. What about, what about you, Ellie? What's interesting to me is that I think that a lot of the problems with gatekeeping in opera are, are actually largely institutional. I mean, that seems like it's like, oh yeah, duh, sort of the thing to say. But like, what I mean by that is, in terms of opera creators, opera creators, librettists and composers have been creating stories told in the opera stage that are still quite relevant and not only relevant to wealthy white people. Uh, you know, obviously, one of the most famous operas ever uh, is uh, Mozart's The Marriage of Figaro, which was an adaptation of a French play by Beaumarchais. And in The Marriage of Figaro, we see the the lower class, the working class uh, figures who are portrayed as smarter, more noble, stronger, more able than the people that they serve. And that was seen as extremely subversive at the time. And Mozart was actually told not to write it. And he did it anyway, because he thought that it was an important story to tell, where we saw these people who were not, before that time, were never really portrayed on stage as any characters of uh, that would be the heroes, that would be the people to aspire to, you know? And even within that opera, you know, there's a, it's, uh, you know, not to get too much into it, but, you know, the two, the two sort of servant characters, Figaro, the butler character, and Susanna, who is the maid, of the two of them, Susanna is actually the smartest one, you know? So even then, it's a, then the, really the hero of that opera is this, is this woman who at that time, you know, 1700s, would probably have been you know the person with the least amount of agency otherwise and we show then in the, in the opera stage this subversion and there are other examples you know sort of throughout history of stories where maybe not culturally inclusive are trying to tell a more subversive uh, a more political quote-unquote kind of a story and the other thing that I want to point out is that opera as a genre for singers 
has actually been somewhat more inclusive, especially as we get into sort of the 20th century. Um, probably one of the most famous examples was, I believe it was uh, in the late 1930s, Marian Anderson, who was a black contralto, uh, in 1939, uh, sang a concert at the Lincoln Memorial. And, and she was largely opposed by one group of people who did not want her to sing there. But overwhelmingly, uh, as the story of, uh, you know, her story got publicized, the American media sided with her and said, no, this is a person who is a great artist, you know, and, uh, and we want to hear her sing. And she was an opera singer. You know, we see examples of that also, um, you know, two of my other really favorite opera singers from history, Angela Peralta, who was from Mexico, uh, who had a very uh, illustrious international career, and Bidu Sayao, who is uh, Brazilian, who also had a really fantastic career and who we have recordings of, you know. And so these are just a few, a handful of examples, but singers actually have, have had some representation you know, on stage, uh, you know, even as early as, uh, you know, sort of the second half of the 1800s. Where opera has been lacking, I would say, is in the representation of the actual creators of opera coming from diverse backgrounds, you know, and that's, you know, that's probably even seen as one of the major operas we see that gets performed all the time is Porgy and Bess. Porgy and Bess very frequently, it's an opera with an, an almost entirely black cast. Uh, that's what it's meant to be um, written by a white composer. And that's just sort of uh, the people bring up, you know, some of the the shortcomings that Gershwin had because he didn't have the sort of understanding of that background and some of the problematic aspects of the opera. But the opera keeps being performed because it's one of the operas that is able to really celebrate a large number of Black singers. And it's very exciting in that way. But we need more uh, actual Black opera creators to create okay. Black stories that are going to be more more authentic to that experience. We need more Latinx creators of operas to be able to tell more authentic representations of our own stories, you know, and the same goes for Asian opera creators. And we see that, um, we see that with increasing um, urgency that opera companies are turning to these communities. And I think it's because they want to undo what is the institutional and by that, I mean, how was opera marketed? Why is uh-huh. opera, why was opera not seen as something to be enjoyed by these, yeah. uh, by communities that are other than white wealthy communities? And that's okay. really because of, you know, the companies, the investors, the people who actually were attending the opera being the gatekeepers. And now there is institutional change. There are an increasing number of people of color who are being uh, invited to serve as administrators on opera companies. This Mm -hmm. is the change that is needed to happen in order to start diversifying opera audiences and to bring in people like us to tell stories that are familiar and to say, this is, this is a place for you because it's been a place for, for these kinds of stories for a long time. So that's what I think for us to be here is to be part of this large scale institutional change. Just to add that it's not only altruistic, the demographics in this country have changed. So by 2050, Latinos are going to be the, the largest yeah. demographic group in schools. If the world of the arts doesn't do something to diversify their offerings, they're, they're just going to lose their audience. And for us, for, for us diverse creators, we need to work on representing our cultures on stage in, in, and, and, you know, and do that work so that 
people can see themselves represented and and attend the concerts and because there's a, I do believe that it does give you something that um, it's it's really not quantifiable. The experience experiencing art in person is not quantifiable. You you just have to feel it, and and yeah. the the currency of emotion is is it's essential. It makes us better. It makes us more human or maybe not more human, but in touch with our humanity. Uh, and that is, that's really important, you know? So we also, we, we also bring something, we contribute yeah. something to the dialogue, to the economic, yeah. uh, to the economy of the arts, um, you know, in the same way that we, we bring something, you know, again, talking about the American dream or this idea of, of the American dream. Yeah, we contribute, we pay our taxes, we educate the young, we, you know, we do all sorts of things for this country. So, you know, it's yeah. it's 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 not all the agency. We are we're an important part of the of the social fabric of this country, and and we should be we should own it, and, and we should be recognized for it. I think it's also important that we that we also don't just tell. I mean, it's very important to represent as as Latino Latinos Latina uh, people. I think that it is important that we tell uh, those those stories, and I am very passionate about portraying these stories on stage. You know, in in as an authentic a way as I can create. But also, you know, my last work before creating Buford Highway Dreams was actually a cantata about about mental health, about depression. It didn't have any sort of specific Latino elements in it, but I still created it and I wanted my name to be on it, you know, in part because I also want to say we we also, uh, we are diverse sort of creators. And I think uh -huh. that it's important that uh, we get seen creating a, a, a large variety of works so that we're yeah. not always just sort of typecast, quote unquote, into writing these kinds of stories. So that's also important, I think. Yeah. No, it's, I mean, everything, everything we're discussing and everything we're saying is powerful and meaningful and it resonates with, with everybody on this call. And so I'm really happy that we've had this, this time to talk. I guess it's, it's appropriate to end this conversation with, um, I'd love for you to share each one, a current dream that you have. It can be small, it can be big. Well, I'll share mine. My dream right now is just to sing more. I love writing. Uh, and it's super important to me, but uh, I can never get enough of singing in my life. And uh, and when I'm singing, as I said before, I feel extremely powerful. And so finding other avenues to uh, to practice that uh, is going to be a, a big dream for me for a while. Thank you. Uh, for me, you know, I, I uh, dreams, they're works in progress. So I'm, I'm working towards achieving the next stage of, of my dream. And, and that is to have a fully staged opera in a large national house in this country. And that it be a story of uh, a, a Mexican story, a Latino story. Uh, that's what I'm working towards. And, but it, you know, but there are many steps on that trajectory. Yeah. So, uh, and there are no shortcuts. So it's one step at a time, one project at a time, one grant proposal at a time, one competition <laughs> at a time, one piece at a time. Thank you so much. It's, I think it's a beautiful um, reminder. This conversation has really made me 
yeah, just reminded me that it's important to keep dreaming and to take ownership of your dreams and, and the things that you want to say. And, and it's your life and it's your happiness. And, and I think that really matters. So I want to thank you both. It's way over the original intended time, but thank you for giving me your time. Thank you for Buford Highway Dreams. It meant so much to us, to our communities. Thank you for being you and for doing the kind of work that you're doing, for always speaking your mind and the art that you're, that you're doing is, is important. And I, I hope that we can stay in touch and continue to collaborate and that I can continue to hear more about the stuff you're doing because it really was just such a pleasure to meet you both. Thank you for having us. Y gracias a, a la comunidad, a todos los paisanos. Fuerza, si se puede. Hay que seguir luchando. Vale la pena soñar. Absolutely. Such a pleasure to uh, get to know you, Natalia. And I, and I do hope that we uh, can continue to work together and to continue to tell, you know, maybe even greater stories of this community that is so rich with stories that are worthy of being told. Thank you for listening to this episode of Voices of a Highway. If you enjoyed it, please share it with those around you. And if you'd like to learn more about the work that we do, find us on social media at We Love Buhai, that is B-U-H-I, or head to our website, welovebuhai.org. See you next time.